Let's jump into the second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in the righteousness that man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that has been the hallmark verse that we've been using in this series since we started this thing. And what we're focusing our attention on is the idea of what the importance of scripture is in the body of Christ today. And uh, if you've uh, noticed during my quarantine time that I'm a little more active on social media than I normally am, and uh, was putting out all sorts of stuff, because frankly, uh, I'm tired of the nonsense that's out there. And I'm not talking about nonsense with Corona or any of that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the nonsense that is out there in the church today. There are a million voices out there. And the question always comes down to is if you hold a worldview based off the, the, the things around you, but what is the foundation of that worldview? And for the church, it should be one thing and one thing only. It should be the unadulterated word of God. This is where our foundation lies. The problem is it's not. We look at this thing and we say, God, I know that's what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. And we're always bringing correction. And, and, and I mean, on, I don't care what the topic is, man. We'll find something to argue about because frankly, that's just what we do. You know, if you get always joke about Jewish people. Remember, the Jews wrote this thing. That you get two Jewish men together, you have three opinions. It's no different in the church today. And the problem we have is the foundation upon this, this thing is built is that we do not allow this to move us in the way that we act. This should move us in the way that we vote. There's Vote Tuesday. I am literally a one-topic voter. If you are pro-murdering people, I am against you. Plain and simple. I'm not kidding. I was in a local election out at Hastings one time, and they were, I think they are electing a dog catcher, something very minimal. And I literally called the guy, I said, what's your stance on abortion? He said, I'm pro-life. I said, okay, good, I'll vote for it. And the reason I want to know that is, is what if he doesn't want to be the dog catcher forever? He wants to move up the ranks. Like, let's just kill it early, just get him out of the way. The thing is, is that the reason I'm pro-life is because God is. It's not because I feel this way, or like, oh, that's sad, or any of that stuff. I'm that way because God is. And if you have an issue with it, take up with him. I didn't make you, I didn't make this, I didn't do any of this kind of stuff. We literally follow the mandates of God, and with that, we need to understand what they are. And to navigate the waters and the tumultuous times of what's going on out there, we have to drown out the noise and go back and say, what did God say? That is why we have so many different opinions on different things. When we talk about the, we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit. We'll get there in a moment, but when we look at those ideas, there's basically three schools of thought. They once existed, no longer do because the time of the apostles is over, because we have the written word of God. So we don't need those anymore. So God doesn't heal today. God doesn't move in a supernatural way. He's kind of up there. We're kind of down here, and we just kind of enact his will. How we know what that will is, I don't know. You know what I love about circular reasoning? You know what God's will is? Whatever he did. You can't falsify that. So we've got that aspect. Then you got the aspect of, like, well, God can move, but it's only if he wants to. So how do we know if he wants to? Where do we turn? We turn back to this. The third school of thought is it's always God's will to move and heal, and he's moving supernaturally throughout the world. You have to ignore a lot of evidence outside of Scripture to say that God is not moving today. But we choose that. So what do we do with this? Why is this not our foundation anymore? It's because we don't like what it says. And frankly, we are lazy. The church today is lazy. We don't study this, we read it. We look for passages that make us feel good. We look, I joke Winston and I, we look for stuff that we can throw on pillows and, and create memes with and all that kind of stuff. We don't know what it means. We just know what it says. When I was out, uh, uh, when I was pastoring out in Hastings and uh, the church that I was at there, I had a group of homeschool teenagers. 
Okay? We homeschool, not anti-homeschool. And these kids would do these things called Bible bowls. And one of the things they had to do is, I don't know all the details of it, but they had to essentially be able to write out portions of the book of Acts. This was the challenge that they were going on. So they were writing out all the word for word, what it said, everything like that. And then after they completed that task, I sat down and like, now will you tell me what that meant? And they're like, no, I don't have any idea. So what did they do? Nothing. They can regurgitate. That's the same thing we do. We're baby birds. We've got our mouths open. We let stuff get stuffed in there. We never ask questions. We should ask questions. We should question everything. We should look at, I don't care what's preached from this pulpit, on TV, on social media. We should ask, why did they say that? Why did they use those words? How can you have two different platforms as far as politically speaking, both taking God as their stance, claiming him to be on their stance, and you have one that is pro-murdering babies and one that's not? Where's God? They can't both be right. They can both be wrong, but they can't both be right. So we have a problem here. And so, uh, needless to say, we always have to get back to this. What does Scripture say? Now, we've been focusing on the gifts of the Spirit. And here, I'm looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So let's go there real quick. I've got it up on the screen. If you want to turn there, I will pause for three seconds to allow you to do so. Time's up. Let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentile, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Now, let me explain this real quick. He's transitioning, Paul, to the Corinthian church. Remember, they're screwed up. They've got a bunch of wacky stuff, wacky beliefs. This is a horrible area as far as uh, all the different nonsense that was going on. They were Gentiles, meaning people outside of covenant, carried away by dumb idols, not stupid, unable to speak. That is the point. However you were led. Therefore I make to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversity of gifts with the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries with the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Another word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Another faith by the same Spirit. Another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy, discerning of spirits, to another uh, different kinds of tongues, another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now, in the greater context of the three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, he's dealing with the gift of the spirit inside of the church. How they operate, he's giving some, uh, basically some rules, if you will, on how to lay this thing down. And we've gotten into that a little bit more in depth. We're not going to repeat all of that. But what we're looking here, at the, what we call the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, as I've showed you in weeks past, there's actually more than that. But these are the nine. We categorize them in three ways. We look at the revelatory gifts, the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and discerning of spirit. The knowing of something that you couldn't know in any other way and to be able to discern what is going on, the activity behind the uh, what we see, what spiritual things are happening. If you come Wednesday night, you'll hear more about that in depth from Genesis chapter 3. And you got the power gifts, the gift of faith, the gift of miracles, the gifts of healings, plural. In other words, more than one. We looked at that. It's like this faith where this boldness rises up. I showed you a couple examples in the New Testament that I think is that. Miracles, gifts of healing. And then we've been in these vocal gifts. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. Beginning to look at all of these different things. And we have been focused in now on prophecy. You know why? You know why we focus on prophecy? Because this is the one everybody loves. All we want to talk about is prophecy. What's happening in the world? What's What's going on? Is this a event out of Revelation? You know, as soon as Corona hit, people want to know if the tribulation started. I don't know. But the bottom line is this, is we've got to understand what prophecy is and what prophecy isn't. Just like we did with every other one of these, looking at tongues and interpretations, what it is and what it is not. 
because there's a lot of noise out there. We've got to break this down scripturally. Now, here's what we know. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is very clear. He says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. We should desire these. This is something we should want. Why? This is something that God has given us to be able to navigate the world. Ultimately, what is our job? To go in all the world and preach the gospel. Do you think these nine things might help a little? It did with the apostles. So he says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesy. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless, indeed, he interprets that the church may receive the edification. Paul himself put prophecy up here. He put tongues down here, unless it is interpreted. Then they're on the same level. In other words, we're speaking a mystery to God when we speak in the tongues, but when we speak prophecy, it is words and language that you can understand. What is prophesied? Well, we looked at the word prophet. The prophet is a transliteration of the Greek word prop eats. It's from two words pro meaning before or forth, or in behalf of Femi, P-H-E-M-I, means to declare to speak together with these two words together. It's one who predicts, one who speaks forth, or one who speaks on behalf of another. When we look at the Greek, how this word is used is N-A-D-I, Nabi to announce witness or testify. What did we notice? We noticed that Aaron was the prophet of Moses. He was speaking on behalf of Moses himself when he spoke. And we see other parts of Scripture that say the same thing. You and I are prophets in the sense of what? We speak on behalf of God. When Jesus said that they have the ministry of reconciliation, to take that word, they are speaking on behalf of of God himself. What are we talking about? Being his imager. In his image, we were created. His image bearer. We should look and sound, smell just like Jesus. So that is the declaration. We began to get into the Old Testament to understand what a prophet was. There were all sorts of prophets. The northern kingdom had a bunch, which was Israel. Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah. You had the southern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Judah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Then through the captivity, you had Ezekiel, and you had Daniel. And then during the restoration, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And we began to look at these and say, what is a prophet? We see the Old Testament. We saw two things. That a prophet was called and anointed by God. That God himself would appear in front of him. And we talk about this being Jesus, ultimately. If you don't remember that, go back and listen to it. I'm assuming it's online. It might be. It will be soon, right? Yeah, there you go. Okay. He's kind of busy, so he does a good job. But they would go, and Jesus himself would appear before them, and then they would begin to speak whatever they heard from God. That's no different today. Today, in Ephesians 4, it says he gives himself some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what were these five things that he gave? He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and in the Greek it actually has pastors who can teach. It's really four, but we'll break it into five. But what was the point of those five things? One thing, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is all believers. The job of these five roles is to equip the saints, when we're talking about a series called Equip, to equip the believers to do the work of the ministry. Here's where we are lost. Because we have put 
the work of the ministry onto these fivefold gifts and that alone, or onto the church structure itself, in which it was never intended to carry that load. We wonder why we have a biblical illiteracy today, because discipleship changed from me or you working with somebody, leading them to the Lord and bringing them up, letting them be a part of our life and seeing how things are done, how we do things, right, wrong, and indifferent, and we put it into a discipleship class. Or we put on these big events to try to evangelize the masses. Evangelism took place by people going and talking to people. Inviting people to church is not evangelism. It's not a bad thing, but it's not evangelism. But we get all this activity and we make ourselves feel good. we got to quit just feeling good. we got to get to work. You see, the saints are the ones who do the work of the ministry. We are trying to edify and build up the body of Christ. Now, when we see this, that means that there are people who are apostles. Some, not all. There are some that are prophets, not all. There are some that are evangelists, not all. And some that are pastors who teach, but not all. Not everybody has this calling, but everybody has a job to do because the whole body of Christ does the work of the ministry. Y'all with me so far? I want to make sure you catch up. Now, we have to establish this. If you have prophets, what's the antithesis of that? False prophets, right? How do we know that there are false prophets out there? It's very simple. Don't say because I met one. Okay? Look at scripture. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is John writing this, right? So at that point, many false prophets had gone into the world. What does he tell them to do? Don't believe everything you hear. Look at Matthew 24, verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Now this is getting into end times, which... We're closer today than we were yesterday. So, you think there's a warning about false prophets? Absolutely. We need to be on guard to them. But the question is, what is a false prophet? And that's what we began to establish two weeks ago, if you were online. Two weeks ago, I began to look at what makes a false prophet. You see, what I want you to understand, there is a distinction between one who is a false prophet and one who prophesies falsely. They are not one and the same. And we're going to begin to break this down. But before we do that, I want to show you something else. Now, I thought I was going to get through all this today, and the more I put this together, the more I realized that was not possible. Because if there is a prophet, and there is a false prophet, there also talks about teachers, which means there will be what? False teachers. Well, it also says there's apostles. means there's, well, there's also a Christ, which means there's a antichrist or a false Christ. Anti does not mean against, it means pseudo. He's pretending to be Messiah. A false prophet is one who is pretending to be a prophet. A false teacher is one who is pretending to be a teacher. Now why am I happy to go through this? Well, because you have to understand the distinguishing of these things or many people are afraid to step out in these gifts because they don't want to be labeled this. Now let's look at a few memes I, I pulled off the internet. Okay? We love meme time? Look at this. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Say hello to the faces of evil. Now, I don't care if you like these people or not, okay? I think I know who all these people are. Well, most of them, anyway. But if you follow down the rabbit trail, they'll begin to tell you, like, oh, these are false prophets, false teachers. Listen, again, we're not here to tell them whether they are or not. But the question is, now, we know these guys like money. They talk about it a lot, right? And that could be good or bad. I don't even care about that. The question is, what is at the heart of the individual in their doing this? 
Okay? So if they believe their theology is correct, but they are misled and it's incorrect, does that make them a false prophet or one who prophesies falsely? Does that make them a false teacher or one who teaches falsely? There's a distinction there. Let's look at the next one. Stephen Furtick, some people like him. False teacher. God broke the law for love. And he gives a couple of verses. False teacher. Is that a true statement that God broke the law for love? The answer is no. That's an incorrect statement. However, what is the point he's trying to make? Do you realize you can make people say anything if you lift it out of context? The point he tries to make there is correct. He just does it, does it for them. But again, does that make him a false teacher? Is he leading people intentionally astray, or perhaps is he misguided? Again, I'm not telling you he is or is not. I'm showing you what I find online. Okay? Let's look at another one. John MacArthur. You can't get more straight-laced than John MacArthur. They're attacking him. This dude barely has a pulse. What are they going after him for? He fails the Deuteronomy 13 test. John MacArthur responds yes to whether a person can be forgiven for receiving 666 in their hands and foreheads. They immediately decide. False prophet. Did he prophesy anything? No. Let's go to the next one. I don't know how many more of these I got. Here's a bunch of false teachers. There's Spurgeon up there. Uh, Billy Graham's on there. What's that? PDJ. All the other things. Isn't that pretty much the culmination of every teacher? Yeah, I mean, eventually they're going to run out. Is that the last one or another one? No, I have another one. Oh, let's go one more. End times. Okay, yes. I like how they stuck the poke in there. <laughs> Which one of these things is not like the other? You know? I don't know who the guys are left. And you can, guys, you can see this stuff all the time. But again, are these people, and I, I, again, I'm making no judgment on what they teach, because frankly, I don't follow any of these guys, especially the Pope, but I don't know what they teach, because I don't follow them. I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you. You ask me today, oh, do you think T.D. Uh, Jakes is a false teacher? Well, you'd have to tell me what he teaches first, because I don't have any idea. I don't, I don't follow him. I know he, uh, he's got a cooler voice than I do. I know that much. But the thing is, is that we're labeling these. We're judging these people based off of what? They disagree with us. That's usually what it comes down to. So what I'm getting at is anybody that believes in the gift of the Spirit, there is one section of the body of Christ, who I believe are born again people, that immediately label them all false prophets and false teachers. But is that what they are? And the answer is no. We have to distinguish. The motive is really what it comes down to. Do you guys realize that there are things that I taught 20 years ago that I no longer believe and would not teach today. Are you shocked to hear that? That somebody grows in their theology and their understanding of Scripture? I know, it's amazing. Let me tell you a story about one of my uh, my teachers at Raymo, where I went to Bible school at. He, uh, he had taught, he never did tell us what it was, but he said he had taught for 15 years in a class, some subject, I don't know what it was. And he got invited to a former student's church to go and preach, and he preached on that subject. And uh, this guy is a, one of the best teachers I've ever heard in my life. And uh, so they go to lunch afterwards, and, and his name is Doug Jones. I'll tell you his name. And uh, he's meeting with this pastor, and he says, what, uh, he's like, you feel everything went okay? He's like, oh, yeah, it was okay. And he's like, well, you seem a little trepidation in saying it. What do you mean? He's like, well, I just disagree with your statement. He's like, what do you mean disagree with my statement? You've got the student and the master here. And he says, well, when I look at scripture, I see it like this. 
And of course, Doug, being a typical human being, is like, no, this is what it says and all of that. Well, they bugged him. So he went home. He spent six months studying the subject to realize he was wrong. Okay? His response was, he immediately sent out a letter to every former student telling him how they were he was wrong, and he was apologizing for misleading them. That wasn't intentional. And then on his own dime, flew back to that church and corrected his statement or whatever it was on his own dime. Didn't ask the church. He did not take up an offering. He refused anything. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Doug Jones a false teacher or one who taught something falsely? One who taught something falsely. See, that's the distinguishing part. That's what I want you guys to get, is that we have all said or done or something that was wrong. But that does not make us a false prophet or a false teacher. When we look at um, the ideas of, of different characters in the Bible, when we talk about these people, there is a distinguishing between the false prophets, those who were of the veils and things like that, were pretending to be, but they knew who they were. So let's look at false teachers today. We're going to begin to look at the Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. It says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now look at this, and we're going to go through several verses today, but I want you to get what's happening here. These false prophets were among the people at this time, even as there will be false prophets <coughs> among them. Why? Is he telling them this? Why is Peter warning these people? Because this is what's going to happen. But what happened? They secretly bring a destructive heresy. They knew what they were doing. They disagreed. They're trying to get in and infiltrate and bring these heretical statements, denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. He's getting on to this. He gives this idea of the motive of the individual. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from food, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What do we see again? In latter times, some are going to be departing from the faith because these deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons are going to be created. In. So now we see the spirit behind it coming in. You guys catching this? Because I want you to see what's happening. This is Paul. He's warning Timothy. Look out for this stuff. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So what do we see here? They will heap up for themselves teachers. So here's what I'm telling you, is that no matter what it is that you claim to believe, you can go out there and find somebody who will agree with you. You can go out there and find some preacher who will agree with you. So let me share a story with you. I was, uh, when I was in Oklahoma, going to school, I uh, first moved there. I may have told some of you this story, but tough. I needed a haircut. Just moved there, needed a haircut. 
I'd gone to the same barber my entire life. I had never made an appointment for a haircut in my entire life. It was one of those old barbers where you just kind of walk in and wait for turn type of thing, right? I don't have a clue where to go. But my apartment was right by the mall, so I ran over to J.C. Penney's. I walked into J.C. Penney's. They had a, a haircut place there, and uh, they said, what can I do for you? I said, I need a haircut. Do you guys have time? And she says, well, yeah. David can help you. And then David turned around. He says, I'd be happy to cut your hair. <laughs> About as flamboyant as you can get, you know what I mean. And I'm like, oh, goody. <laughs> and all I'm thinking about is, how can you cut my hair without touching it? <laughs> Honestly, right? I'm uncomfortable in the situation as it is. I don't know any of these people. Like, I was kind of shy back then, as hard as that is to believe. So we go and sit down. And he's telling his story. He's just, he is super effeminate, super flamboyant, and all that. He's cutting my hair. And uh, we get to talking, and he, he says, Yeah, I've been having a hard time at work here lately. I said, Really? Why is that? He said, Well, it's because everybody here thinks I'm, and he looks around, and he goes, Thinks I'm gay. And I'm like, You don't say. <laughs> well, what had happened is he, of course, he had been, but he'd given his life to Christ, and he'd come out of that lifestyle. But he's very young in his faith. Well, David and I hit it off, and uh, he cut my hair from then on out. In fact, he hung out at my apartment all the time. He went with me to buy my dog. We just did stuff together. Oh, man, he's a great guy. Um, I may have told this part of the story, too, but he begged me for months and months and months. He wanted to dye my hair, and I have never dyed my hair except this once, okay? And he's a, you got to understand, this guy's a master hairstylist. Like, he did the Oprah show. I mean, he is... As far as that goes, he's really good. I don't know what makes one good or not, because my hair is pretty simple, but he was really good. So he begged to dye my hair. So I finally let him talk me into it, which was mistake number one. Okay? <laughs> Platinum blonde. <laughs> yeah. And I worked for Coke at that point, and I had to work the night shift. And of course, it was the same day as we had our, uh, our weekly meeting, and I show up. I was hazed like no other you know, imagine. And after three days of continuously being hit on by men, I called him up and said, I don't know what you gotta do to fix this, but it's time to fix it. I'm gonna shave my head at that. So David had given his life to Christ and he was coming up, and so he would come over to that house all the time. My wife and I would would do Bible studies together, we talked to him, and we just loved the guy. He was just a great guy. And uh, he was doing really, really well. And then one day he met a pastor, and that pastor told him that God had made him that way, and he did not have to deny that anymore. And he went on a downward spiral like I had never seen. And he got to the point of the hardest thing I ever had to do is, is finally tell him, it's like, David, I, I can't have you over. Because what was happening, he was going out and doing all sorts of stuff, I'm talking drugs and alcohol and stuff. And then he would come back to me and just feel guilty and want someone to pray for him and just basically make him feel good. I just couldn't do it anymore. And I finally told him, man, I love you. If you decide to get things right again, I'm here for you. And I will do anything for you, but I can't, I can't in any way condone this. But that pastor had told him that God had made him that way and it completely thanked him. Now, praise the Lord. He got things corrected a couple years later. Uh, he actually went to the same school that I did. He's doing great today. I, I Still chat with him on Facebook every once in a while. But, but what I'm telling you is, like, I don't care what it is you believe. You'll find somebody that will agree with you. Because what happens is we don't want to hear the truth. We want to hear what we want to hear. 
We want somebody to simply confirm our beliefs, and that is the problem we have today, is that instead of allowing the Word of God to correct and rebuke, we take it and say, God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you mean. And we twist the Word. We do it in our circles. They do it all over the place today. How do we come against that? We have to know what the word says. Look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Did I read this one? I did read this one. Let's go to Jude chapter 1. Verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. How do they creep in unnoticed? That is nobody paying attention. You see, it's kind of the frog in the pot theory. Is that if the water's hot, you throw the frog and he's getting out. But if you allow him to sit there and simmer, it'll eventually get cooked and not even realize what's happening. We need to be watchful. This comes in both the theological circles as well as everyday circles. We need to be able to discern what is out there, what is good and what is bad. I love it. When people either call, text, Facebook, whatever, when they're saying, hey, I heard this, something about this, what are your opinions on this? What do you think? And I always go back to Scripture, because my opinion is irrelevant if it's not grounded in the Word. It has to be grounded in something, and so I love when people are out there and their antennas go up like, something's not right here. There's something wrong. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. It says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord, who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. There's a lot of things that are being said here, but because of them, the way of truth is blasphemed. It's covetousness that they exploit you with deceptive words. In other words, it is a jealousness, a wanting of something more than what they have, that they will exploit you with words that sound good. Look at verse 4. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved of judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who after, afterward would live ungodly and deliver righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from, the day, from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of the temptations to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous self-will. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, who are these? These people that he's been describing the whole time, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deception while they feast with you. Now, spots and blemishes, why is that a big deal? Why use that word, that, that group of words? The Messiah had to come without spot, without blemish. 
In other words, it has to be perfect. You and I are made perfect through the blood of Christ. It's the only way we are. It's not based on what we do. These guys, they are spot, they're the antithesis to this. They are carousing in their own deception while they feast with you, verse 14, having eyes full of adultery, and they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken in the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, again, what are we seeing here? They know where they are. They are not seeking the Lord. They have made a God in their own image and they are seeking him and they are deceiving those around. Now, why is he constantly warning about this? Because it's so easy to be deceived. If your foundation is not in the unadulterated word of God, you can be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that is out there. There's a distinguishing between those who teach something falsely, it was maybe incorrect, they didn't, they didn't, but their intentions were pure, than these guys, because they're after one thing. Just like Balaam, the wages of unrighteousness. What are the wages of unrighteousness? It's one of two things. You receive that wage now, and that it feels good, but you'll receive that wage later when you face God in judgment. You are paid for your action. Verse 17, these are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Look at verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Now let me show you something here. Great <laughs> swelling words of emptiness. Think about the sermons that are on TV today. I'm not throwing everybody on the bus and saying, oh, we're so great here. What I'm saying is, it is basically a TED Talk where they throw a Bible verse in once in a while. It might as well be Tony Robbins up there, making you feel good where you are. When you constantly tell people that you are so great and so magnificent that God created you in the way that you are, he loves you the way that you are, you need to come to him. Why do I need to come to him? You just got done telling me how great I am. You see, it's these swelling words that are completely empty. Now, that doesn't mean that they are lusting after the flesh. They may mean well, but not only. You know what's crazy? Kanye West. I couldn't believe he, he just did an interview with a guy named Joe Rogan. Somebody sent it to me, just the, the snippet. But he was talking about these, he gave his life to Christ, if you didn't know that, okay? And uh, he was talking about, he's like, I don't like those preachers that just kind of get up and preach like niceties and stuff like that. He's like, I like those guys that do it expositionally, which means they go in it verse by verse, and they go through and they break down the scripture verse by verse, so that scripture can interpret scripture, and I can understand it. And I'm like, Kanye gets it. Why don't we get it? Kanye gets it. Of all people. So look at what they're doing. Verse 18 again. When they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. 
For if after they escape the pollutions of the world, though that through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to a wallowing in the mire. So, again, we see this all over here. There's a distinction between a false teacher who is deliberately leading people astray and one who is maybe off a little bit. The reason I'm sharing these with you, and I want you to see, we're going to look at apostles and, and Christ and all of this stuff here next week. But the reason I'm sharing this is there may be a time where the Lord puts something on your heart to be delivered here to the church, to the people. And you may not notice this. God, is this in my head? Am I crazy? You know, whatever. We need to be bold to say, I believe the Lord has told you something, and we deliver it. What is our job? We, we judge it, not them. State it doesn't make you a false prophet. It just means that we're growing in our understanding. Of How do we combat this stuff? Look at Romans 12, verse 1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, let's stop there for just a minute. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Well, obviously, the living part means you're not dead. Okay? But to be a sacrifice. In order to be a sacrifice underneath the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, it had to be a certain criteria. Couldn't just be any old animal, couldn't be in any, you don't go and pick the worst thing out there, like, this one's about dead, I think I'll take it in today. It, there, was, there was the laws of first fruits, there's all this stuff. And yet today, we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy, set apart, and acceptable to God. It's our reasonable service, but what do we want to do? Well, God, I don't like that part, so I'm just going to leave that over there, but I'll do this other stuff. We don't do this today. We have not made our life conform into this living sacrifice. We just kind of do what we want and we bring Jesus along with the rock. Look at verse 2. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is something we're supposed to do. The transformation process is your mind is renewed so that you can prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Okay, that's great. So we're to renew our mind, but it doesn't tell us how. Well, 2 Corinthians does. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself in pleading with you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. For what? Pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, let's break this down. There are three things here. Pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. There's two parts of the knowledge of God. Who he is, and also what he has promised. You see it in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say here it is that the strongholds that go against the knowledge of God, the arguments that go against the knowledge of God, and any high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, we got to take into captivity that thought to the obedience of whom? Christ. And what is that obedience and where is it found? It's found in the Word. We're constantly renewing our mind, understanding who we are in relationship to God and who He is. Through the Word. It is what makes these arguments. In other words, that when these arguments come, and they will... 
What do we turn back to? The Word. Every single time. Well, is there a place in Scripture that puts us into practice? Absolutely. Turn to Acts 17. I've got it up on the screen. You've got your Bible flipped there because you need to underline this part. You need to see what it says. I'm going to start in verse 1. We're dealing with Paul here. It's not going super well for him. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So, a synagogue is essentially a church where the Jews met. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbaths. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Stop. Did Paul have an experience? You better believe he did. But what did he reason with them from? The Scriptures. And what are the Scriptures at this point? It's the Old Testament. For three Sabbaths, Friday night to Saturday night, that's the Sabbath. There are some out there that will tell you, like, well, Paul was the uh, apostle to the Gentiles, which is true, but he always started with the Jews. It's to the Jew first and then the Greek. Three Sabbaths, for three weeks, he went in there, went from the scriptures, explained and demonstrated that the Christ had to suffer, rise again from the dead, and say, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, this is bold. Remember, the Jews at this point were waiting on two messiahs. They thought they had two separate messiahs come. And they had adopted the belief that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was the nation of Israel because of all the nonsense that they had dealt with. Now that was all self-inflicted nonsense, but in typical fashion, we don't want to take accountability upon ourselves. So they believed that, and they were waiting on the reigning king. That is why when the apostles were constantly saying, are you going to set up a kingdom now? Can I be at your right hand? Can I be at your left hand? You know, that is what they're doing. They're politicking for position. They're waiting on Jesus to set up his kingdom. So they thought there was either two messiahs that were coming uh, once, but not one messiah coming twice. And he is reasoning from the scripture that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So, some people believed him. They had taken the word in that was preached, and they accepted it. But the Jews, verse 5, who were not persuaded, became envious. They took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring out, bring them out to the people. Now, look what it just said here. It wasn't like they stood up and said, guys, Paul's an idiot. Don't listen to him. He's wrong. Listen to us. They became envious. What were they envious of? Paul had made some disciples. These people were no longer following them. They are now following him. Why? Because they were confronted with the truth, and they accepted his word as truth. So these men didn't just stand up and say, hey, no, this is wrong. What did they do? They went to the marketplace and gathered evil men to create a mob against them. What does that mean? There were men for hire that had nothing better to do than to raise a ruckus. And they went and got them on their side and likely came up. It kind of sounds like what's going on today, doesn't it? Anyway, I'm not going to get off on that sidetrack, but this is what they did. Now, why did they need to do this? He sought to bring out the people. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Who's he referencing? Followers of the way, the believers. The whole Jewish world is being flipped upside down because they are declaring Messiah has come. And their message is being confirmed with signs, wonders, and miracles. And people are believing it. It's no longer as simple as we'll just keep them under. So, Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. 
And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Security means money. They had to pay bail, I guess, to get out. But look at verse 10. Then the brethren immediately went, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, just like they had done before. Now these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Now what does that mean? Paul went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He preached the same message he had pre preached in Thessalonica. And these guys are like, okay, what should we do with that? They took what he said, they went back to study the scriptures daily to see if what he had preached actually was true. So this tells you it doesn't matter what anybody says, what I say from this pulpit. Your job is to go see if I'm right. We don't live that way anymore. We just believe everything we read, everything we hear. We don't study the scriptures to see if those things are true. Now, verse 12, therefore many of them believe. Also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. Now look at the, uh, the result of this, verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. So now the word is getting out someplace else, now we got to go cause a problem down there. What am I telling you? I want you to see the distinction between a false teacher and one who maybe teaches something falsely. I'll show you examples of that next week. But also, the result. How do we deal with this? We always go back to Scripture. I don't care who says it. I don't care if I say it. I don't care if you hear from your favorite preacher on TV or your favorite book. We always bring it back to Scripture. It is the only way that we will survive as the body of Christ today. It is the only foundation we have. Paul did not go in there and say, let me tell you this story. I'm walking down the road. I didn't believe in this Jesus. Then he showed up and he kind of blinded me for three days. And then this guy came and he unblinded me. And here I am. He reasoned with them from Scripture. That is the distinction between a teacher being led by God and a false teacher who's being led by ulterior motives. Are you guys seeing this? Are you guys catching the difference between prophets and false prophets, teachers and false teachers? There's a distinction there. We have to understand it. It is our job to be on guard. So we'll dig into this just a little bit more next week and finish this part of it up. But I want you to see that it's so important because I have seen many people through the years who they felt like God had told them something to share with a group or an individual and were afraid to step out because they're afraid they might be wrong and they don't want to be a false prophet. That is not what is going on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.